Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If. Only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I make my own rules, one Bonko party at a time. I write history and I read celebrities. I am JMZ. Life is a classroom and I'm here to teach. Welcome to the first episode of our second season of Historians on Housewives. You're here with me, Casey. You're here with Jessica, Dr. Jamie, the millionaires. Max Spear. Still broke, but now we have a kid. <laughs> <laughs> so a few updates for season two. The first is that occasionally you're going to hear our son, Kelly Bear, on the mic. He has a lot to say. He's a very opinionated baby. Uh, and he, he and yeah, we named him Kelly feedback. Bear, and we named him Kelly Bear. Sorry, <laughs> and he wears it. Okay, he wears yeah. it well. Uh, the second thing is that you know season two is being recorded in the midst of pandemic. Uh, so unlike season one, where Jessica and Max and I got to be in person all the time, it's been really strange because we do almost everything remotely. This is the first time we've seen Jessica in person since January 2020. It is now September of 2020. And, um, you know, she had to get multiple COVID tests to come over. This is true. I had two COVID tests yesterday. And she's very negative. So she gets to be here in person with us, which is so exciting and very refreshing. Very almost kind of strange at this point to be in the same place with another human being. They were so excited. They've been taking this quarantine very seriously. There were there were tears in, the, in 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 Casey's eyes when she realized, wait, you're the first guest we've had here. We haven't seen you in like a year and a half. <laughs> what are you talking about? I see you every week. No, <laughs> well, but it's, it's not the same. You're in person. Yeah, it's not no, over. It feels better. It feels better being in person. Yeah. So you'll usually hear Jessica. Well, Kelly doesn't like it in person. <laughs> <laughs> I I'm, thought I had charmed you. Oh, see? He was done with his milk. Yeah. So usually you'll hear Jessica over Zoom, but to right now we're very lucky to have her in person. And this brings us to our intro for this episode with Jason Herbert, head of historians at the movies, uh, that in fact a movie 
was kind of part of our origin story, realizing that we had a lot of common interests beyond Bravo. Uh, and, you know, we're, uh, we have just co-hosted a night with uh, Historians at the Movies, but uh, we actually had to search hard for what our pick would be because our first pick was a movie that Jason had already screened, and so we couldn't repeat it. So, Jessica, do you want to take it away with what our first choice was and, and what this movie is that is kind of wrapped up into Historians and Housewives' origins? Our first movie pick was a documentary extraordinaire. It cataloged my early experiences and Max's early experiences as a musician in a way no other film could. I'm talking about the Motley Crue documentary, The Dirt. <laughs> So important is the dirt to our, to our origin stories. I was a young kid on the wrong side of the tracks in Salt Lake City, Utah, if there's such a thing. And yes, hard rock was my only outlet. Do you remember when we first started talking, like we both realized that you and I were big, big like dirt fans of not only the book, The Dirt, but also of like Motley Crue. Oh my goodness. How could I forget? With Brenda Stevenson at the, at the dinner table. <laughs> Oh, you don't remember it? <laughs> yes, we were in Philadelphia. Yeah. Ah, yes, picture it. Philadelphia Organization of American Historians meeting, 2019. There yeah. we are, right? Yeah. Because the was. movie, it had just come out in March on Netflix. And I think OAH was the very first weekend of April. And that's where we were launching the podcast. We started talking to people. Mm-hmm. And we were... And you and I had talked a little bit, but we had not, like, really interrogated each other's interests. And I don't remember how it came up, um, but we went out to Indian food. Yes. And you and I were sitting across the table from one another. At Into Blue, I know. Yeah, Into Blue. Mm-hmm. It was delicious. It was delicious. Everyone else on the other end of the table were talking about the things that other people talk about at conferences. And somehow Max and I both stumbled upon the dirt. At the same time. <laughs> Keep in mind, I had just examined uh, Max on his qualifying examinations, or I was about to. But you were, uh, like, maybe a couple weeks out. Yeah. yeah, so this was, like, seeing each other new for the first time. And being like, her name was Bullwinkle. <laughs> 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 if you don't get that reference, go out, pick up the dirt. Or uh, just or, watch on Netflix. Or watch it on right. Netflix. Uh yeah, that is definitely a specialized taste uh, with a lot of trigger warnings. <laughs> so so we bonded over the dirt, and it was one of these moments where we got to really be regular people with each other, and it was so much fun, and I think it gave us a lot of energy to be like, yeah, we can talk about Housewives and Bravo TV and still uh, also have a lot to say about history and scholarship and we can blend the two and and you know have this really fun space the twist came when jason had already showed the dirt they've already watched it historians at the movies have already watched it and so when we started recording with him it was a beautiful setup short version i strong-armed into letting us watch it again (laughs) and then max it was brilliant brilliantly executed if i may it but, was really well done. But then Casey and Max reminded me, uh, maybe maybe we don't want to strong arm him. 
So we chose a different movie. <laughs> well, also, also, Jason was like, eh, I don't know. Maybe that's not going to be the best to replay so soon. You know, because usually there needs to be a good reason to do I mean, like a repeat. It's the dirt. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I know that you're probably still hurt, hurting over it because with COVID, you couldn't go see them on tour. I don't want anyone to worry. My two tickets for Motley Crue. Wait, let me let me back up. Joan Jett. Poison, Def Leppard. Did I? Is Rat gonna be there? Did I lie? Joan Jet, Poison. I'm missing one. I think Rat is. I think Rat, Def Leppard, and Motley Crue. Don't worry. It's been rescheduled for next year. Oh, thank God. Don't worry. Max might have to go with me. <gasps> I'll suffer through it. Yeah, the reason Max <coughs> didn't get tickets initially because I was like, eh, we'll have a baby, and I think he'll be too little for you to go to the concert. So this gives Max a whole new opportunity. That's a long way of saying we wanted to do the dirt. We wanted to go ahead and tweet, live tweet with the dirt. And that's not what happened. We chose another movie, but that was a great way to introduce our wonderful guest, Jason Herbert. And especially since COVID has hit and, you know, we're recording this like on the heels of so much COVID fatigue we had a great time talking with him about movies and Hollywood and basically what everyone's watching. Yeah. So without further ado, let me tell you about Jason Herbert. So Jason Herbert is a doctoral candidate in early American history at the University of Minnesota and the creator of Historians at the Movies, a weekly multimedia event bringing historians together with film and history lovers around the world. He is currently an ethnographer for the Seminole Tribe of Florida, working to tell a cultural history of the Everglades. So with that, welcome Jason Herbert. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to uh, be here on the uh, opposite coast. (laughs) Would you like to share what your Real Housewives tagline would be? Yeah, it's uh, stop the car. I've got to move that turtle. So... That's so funny to me, but that's pretty funny. It's 100% the truth. Uh, my, my, like when we, my kids will be in the truck with me and I'll see a turtle here in Florida and I'll hear my eight year in the backyard go, dad, do we have to? He's like, he's like, why do you stop all the time? I'm like, I have to, there's a turtle in the road. It's like, and the boys just do not even want to get out of the truck anymore. They're like, can we just stay here, please? this time so how often does this happen okay so in florida we actually have this subspecies of tortoise here in florida called the gopher tortoise it's uh, it's a threatened species uh and if i were here showing you on my phone um they're actually protected here in the state of florida and you can actually get this uh this app here on your phone um for those of you who are not with us right now where you can actually when you see a gopher tortoise you can be a citizen scientist and like document it. You can take a picture of it and then log it in your coordinates into the state's uh, website so that you can, uh, so that you can help the state track this species. Um, now I happen to live for a, for a couple of years out in central Florida where these, these got these really sandy soils where these animals really like to live. Um, so I set a record in the state of Florida a couple of years ago by tracking 132 gopher tortoises in 2018. Wow. Um, yeah. I, I, that I'm is the bathroom. coolest record. Yeah. Like I can't, like right. that's just, that should be like some hall of fame stuff. 
for just like digital cool. historians. Right, or crowdsourcing. That's the best crowdsourcing story I've heard in a while. Well, you know, before the whole HATM thing took off, like that was kind of like my thing that people knew me for on Twitter was like, I was constantly like, right? Um, and so forth. So, uh, and it's not like the worst thing in the world. Like nobody gets mad at somebody who moves a turtle, you know? It's like I've been called way worse things than turtle mover. So, uh, <laughs> you know, and now, now I, go ahead. Okay, sorry, go ahead. I live on the coast of Florida now. Um, so the species don't, there are not as many here. So I've actually only moved about four turtles so far in 2020. It's been like one of the real bummers. It's like, I'm, you know, uh, I live, I live, I'm fortunate enough to live kind of close to the water. Uh, it's great. It's a great place to live, but I don't have as many turtles here. And it drives me, it makes me sad. So every time I, I drive around central Florida, like I will later tonight, I'm constantly scout, scanning the sides of the road for one that I can like, you know, go be a hero to. And of course these animals just, completely are always annoyed by me. They're always hissing at me. I've been defecated upon and urinated upon so many. It's, it's a lot like grad school. Let's come to think about it. Um, so, uh, yeah, or that's a my episode or a housewives episode, but I'm absolutely just like a housewives episode, right? There's yelling, there's crying. <laughs> uh-huh. That's cool. That's cool. Well, I live, I live by a nature preserve. Casey and Max used to live over here. And so there is a nature preserve. So just as you said it, I thought about the one time I've seen a turtle crossing mm. the road. Traffic was backed up in both directions. And, you know, we live, <laughs> we, Orange County is uh, California. They're very interesting. The people are very interesting. So they did not feel the need to pick the turtle up or to, I mean, it was big enough to pick up, but no, no. We must all step back give it its space, like social distancing, and wait for it to cross the road. There was no helping the turtle move. There was no directing traffic. We must all stop. So 30 minutes later, life went on. <laughs> so, so I, I actually, oh, sorry, Jessica. No, I'm done. I was just going to say, I have to make this Bravo connection now because there is a real housewife who loves turtles and she's like a big animal lover um, and Mm -hmm. would know her from Escape to Witch Mountain because it's Kim Richards. Oh, I can see that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so she's like, right, like her early kind of housewives kind of persona was the turtle lover who would do anything to save the animals. Um, Yeah. And she's become kind of a tragic character, but her animal love has been always on point so and and i like that it has that connection to the movies since she was a childhood celebrity she was well it's interesting because i just watched uh, uh beverly hills last uh, two nights ago and kim made a reprisal but i was still confused about it being a recent episode or an old rep- episode so i went to twitter and there was a lot of conversation about kim and this turtle so it brought it all back to me um and it was a recent episode by the way Um, okay. So I love your tagline. That worked for me. That was great. Um, Oh, Casey, we're from here. I'm sorry. No, thanks. We were just enjoying the conversation. (laughs) So before we actually jump in to talk about historians, the movies, can you tell us a bit about your own academic journey? Oh my gosh. Sure. Um, if I can recall all of it, it's been quite the, you know, it's been quite the, uh, the, the journey. Um, so I'm currently a doctoral candidate at the University of Minnesota. I'm 
uh, working on finishing up my dissertation right now on indigenous Florida. And uh, essentially what I'm doing is looking at the transformations of indigenous Florida, really from the 16th through the mid 19th centuries, as a result of, of the most unlikely of animals, cow. Um, and I don't know why I started writing about cattle, but uh, this happened along the way. And much like my own historical career, I uh, I went back to, to school and much later, I'm a t- proud two-time college flunk out. It takes a lot of work to flunk out of college uh, twice uh, when I was, you know, 19, 20 years old. Um, and so I went back to school when I was uh, 32 to a Tallahassee Community College, um, worked, worked hard there, finished up my bachelor's and master's actually out in Kansas at Wichita State and ended up at the, at the University of Minnesota to, to finish everything up. So uh, now I'm working on finishing up this, uh, this dissertation uh, where it's coming along. I live down here again in Florida because Minnesota is just way too cold. There are no turtles in, in Minnesota. Uh, they're, but they're very, they're very Nordic. Um, so they've all got like the beanie hats and things like that, whatever, uh, when, when you see them. Uh, so I'm finishing up my dissertation now, and I'm also, uh, currently an ethnographer for the Seminole tribe of Florida, uh, right now assisting, uh, the tribe with a project that they're working on at the moment. So that's the long and short of it, I guess, that you might say as far as where I'm at in my academic career. Cool. Wonderful. Okay. So, and again, as I was saying, as I was talking over you, because I was so excited, you do not have to qualify why you'd be in Florida and not Minnesota. <laughs> I mean, that speaks for itself. So I do think Minnesota is gorgeous during the summertime. Magical summers in Minnesota. Beautiful. We were there for a few years ago. It was beautiful. Okay, so tell us about historians of the movies. For the longest time, I looked at this hashtag and I couldn't figure out what, what it was. I did not do my due diligence which is unlike me, but I saw all these interesting conversations, but I didn't know what the, the hashtag, wait, I'm going to get it all wrong already. H A T M. What? So tell us about it. How did you come up with it? How has it grown? I mean, this is one of the best things on Twitter. Thank you. Um, it's crazy is what it was. Uh, um, the H A T M. Historians at the movies has happened completely by accident. And what it is, it's, Every Sunday night, every weekend for the last two years, in fact, in four days is going to be our two-year anniversary. Um, every weekend for the last two years, we've come together by we, I mean, just people on the internet, Twitter users, to come together to, lot, to watch a film together, live tweet it, and then talk about the movie, right? Um, when we first started the film, uh, this term, a watch party, did not exist. I, I think that we're the longest-running watch party on the internet uh, now. And... Really what happened was, you know, whenever I left Minnesota, when I left my, uh, my university up there, I got done with my coursework and really needed to come back down to Florida to work on the actual research and working with the tribe to understand, you know, what I was working on. But part of the difficulties in doing so is that you really left your intellectual community behind at the university. Because, you know, it's one thing to go to classes, but really where the engagement goes on is you know, in the hallways, in the workshops, in the elevators, when you talk about your work, your colleagues' work, your friends' work, kind of keeping you mentally down your game. And whenever I moved down to Florida, I lost a lot of that. There was no connections. I lived in a very small town where I was when I was doing the research. And I really looked to Twitter to kind of rebuild a lot of that intellectual community, if you will. Um, and I had remembered having a conversation years ago with an archaeologist friend of mine and 
she and I always like to joke that archaeologists get Harrison Ford, they get Indiana Jones, and <laughs> historians, we get Nick Cage, we get Benjamin Franklin. <laughs> um, so, okay, um, but that's fine. But, you know, the funny thing is, is like, uh, so we get, you know, talking about national treasure, uh, and I talked to other historians about how much we kind of love this film. You know, it's not a serious movie. It's, it doesn't take itself seriously. It's kind of fun and witty and zany and all that, but it's, it's a fun movie. And I'd seen that it was on Netflix one night, and I was like, hey, let's all, let's all watch it. We should watch it sometime. And it was like, great. Do it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, I'll do that. So I spent like a week and a half or whatever putting this whole thing together, trying to drum up some interest. And a whole bunch of people got together. It was this wide range of groups. And of course, we had to come up with a hashtag so people could find each other and things like that and try to arrange some people uh, to watch it. And we call historians at the movies. I say we because I'm from Kentucky. So I use this very plural we that my grandmother would say, we're, we're going to clean the house today. And I knew that meant me. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, what? So when I say we, we, you know, we put together this thing. And it's called historians of the movies. But really what it's about, it's, the idea was like, okay, we're going to get some historians to kind of give some inputs, maybe some insight on the film as we kind of watch. But we're not going to take ourselves too seriously. I mean, again, our founding film is national treasure. Okay, we're not, this is not a thing where we're going to sit and bag on a film too much. It does happen. We, we watched The Patriot a few weeks ago, and that was a lot of fun. But we watch it, we have a nice time, and we, it was like hour and a half, two hours, whatever. I'm like, great, we should do it again sometime. Everyone said, next week. Wow. Okay. Uh, I guess we're going to do Lincoln. Right. So we do Lincoln. Uh, and then the week after that, we end up doing a Marie Antoinette. And then I think we did Coco and then trading places. And we were off to the races after about four or five weeks. And it was just like, we're going to go. Um, and we've been going now for every single week for two years, sometimes even more than uh, one film a week due to COVID or like there's a special film or something like that. So uh, and that's the idea. We're just trying to bring historians and non-academics, maybe non-scholars. Uh, historians and the general public together to watch a film. You know, you don't have to be a historian to watch watch these movies. If you like movies, you like you like history, you like movies about history, come hang out. That's that's the general idea. Well, well I have a follow up question. Sure. Well, I have a follow two follow up questions, but I also want to give someone else a chance to talk. So let me let me recede, which I don't do often, and I'll let Matt or Casey have a chance to talk. I was. I was actually going to make a comment that what I love so much about historians at the movies is that it allows historians to really be full people and for, you know, the mass public to then in turn look at historians as full people, right? That we're not just always solitary in our research, right? But that we enjoy regular things too. You really never meet historians in the wild, like, Historians tend to congregate at conferences. We tend to congregate um, within our own departments. But, like, I've never been out somewhere and, like, somebody asks, oh, what do you do? I'm a historian. And then the other person goes, oh, me too. That never happens. So, like, yeah, thank you for, like, creating that space. No, you know, you're absolutely right, right? Um, and I think that, like, a lot of times scholars – it's easy to point to scholars and say, oh, you live in an ivory tower, right? And if you look close enough at, at my Facebook page, you're going to see pictures of me 
as a young child in Louisiana holding alligators because that's what you did for fun. Um, and that's just anything but us. But what it really does is it does, like you said, just kind of humanize. It really does break down barriers. And not just between, say, uh, academics and the general public, but really between academics and other academics, right? And I'm here I'm talking about maybe junior scholars. You know, I don't have my PhD yet. I'm still, you know, still a junior scholar in my myself and i'll tell you that when i go to conferences and things like that there are often it's like oh my gosh there's that person and i want to go say hi to her or him and i'm but i'm just me right um and what i've seen here is that as we've gone through people certainly when we go to conferences like oh you do the movie thing or you do this or whatever you get to know that some scholars are really into uh fishing or bird watching or whatever it is you know things that they're like personally because here's here's the thing HATM provides an entry point into a conversation with other people, right? You know that you can talk to this person because you share this other interest with them, in this case, films, right, or history, uh, or something like that. And then from there, you get to, maybe you start to follow this person that had that quirky little line when we watched uh, whatever. Um, and you see, oh, wait, you know, they, they're going through the same kind of stuff that I am. And you start to follow this person, maybe you even, and the other cool thing is, like, you start to become exposed to their work as a result right you know if i write this book on cattle in florida and six people read it i haven't changed anything nothing has been done but you know as other scholars like kevin cruz have shown us and so forth you know with a well-placed tweet you can really get to a lot of folks you can influence thought and opinion and maybe pick some people up um along the way um and I think maybe that's what HATM allows us to do is maybe kind of uh, as, as scholars kind of say, hey, here's a platform in which we can relate to other folks. That is fun. It's inviting. And for me, most importantly, it's safe. Uh, I really want HATM to be this place in which people can come to on the weekends and know that it is a fun, welcoming place where they are wanted, right? Where they are appreciated. And we're all here just to have a good time. At the end of the day, we're just trying to kick back on the couch and relax for a couple hours with some friends. Uh, what are your top three movies? Um, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Top three films. You know, it's it's interesting. So, as a child of the seventies, I got to say that Star Wars is always going to be up there. When I say Star Wars, I'm referring to the Holy Trilogy. Right. Yeah. I'm talking about Star. I'm talking about a New Hope. I'm talking about Empire Strikes Back. I'm talking about Return of the Jedi. And I'm not kidding. I was just in my office here working. I come out of having lunch. I walk in the living room and my eight year old is watching Empire Strikes Back. And I'm like, I am, I am doing something <laughs> right. Yeah. For those of you who can't see, um, Jason has just shown us a property of Minnesota established 1851, yeah. but it's a stormtrooper uh, emblem on the, 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 the shirt. The shirt. Thank sure. you. I have dad brain now. So, <laughs> so Star Wars is always going to be there. And I always refer to the, to the Holy Trilogy as one film, right? Um, but the other two films, I would say my top three films are actually gonna, also going to be, one's a documentary. It's called Riding Giants. It's about the history of big wave surfing. Great movie. And I am fascinated. In my opinion, it's the best documentary I've ever seen. I fully credit that film with helping me get over my fear of flying years ago. I was terrified of flying. There's this great line that Laird Hamilton uh, says towards the end of the film when he's talking about his own pursuit of big wave, uh, big waves. And he says, you know, I don't want to not live because I'm afraid of something that could happen. You know, so it really kind of propelled me to like accept, like, just don't be afraid of the unknown. Um, so it's, it's a 
fabulous film. I'm de- you know, we don't really show documentaries on HATM, but the second that becomes available on Netflix, uh, we're going to show it. because I will watch Riding Giants about once a month. Um, and I always watch it the night before I fly. So uh, I still do that. Uh, and then my uh, other film is going to be Singles, the early 1990s. Uh, Cameron Crowe owed to the Seattle Sound. If there's one thing I lament in life is that I was not 10 years old or living in the Pacific Northwest. I feel like I missed out. I just want to wear flannel and be angst-ridden. And I'm just angst-ridden wearing a Star Wars shirt today. Um, so, but, you know, when you talk about, like, movies really hitting on a cultural head, did he ever pegged that moment in one time? And in my opinion, greatest soundtrack. Uh, I've ever heard. So those are my my three favorite films. I could I could talk about them all day. Like I said, the irony is I haven't shown any of those on HATM yet. I'm desperate to, but uh, but not just yet. Well, those none of them three. are on Netflix yet, right? Yeah, you know, and I've been con- conscious about that. So like every film that we've shown, with the exception of Hamilton, which we had just shown a, a few nights ago, um, has been on Netflix. And there was a very real reason for it. Just the idea is that the audience, most of the audience has Netflix. And because of the ways in which things move around in our lives, I wanted to have an anchor point. So, you know, every Sunday night on this station at this time is a new movie. And you knew that all you had to do was kind of tune in and then the movie was there. I didn't want folks to have to like, oh, well, I want to watch it, but it's on Amazon or I want to, I don't have this subscription to that or whatever. Like we just have the one show. Or the one channel, that's what we'll show. And so that's that's meant having to sacrifice sometimes because, like, you know, maybe, maybe there's this perfect film on, like, I want to show, like, Hunt for Red October, like, so many times. But it's been on Amazon and not, not on Netflix. But um, usually there's enough films that on Netflix where I can just kind of pick and pop my way around to find whatever will kind of match whatever feeling I'm trying to project in a, in a, in a certain night. Well, that brings up my next question. So mm-hmm. what makes a good um, historians of the movies, uh, movie selection? How do you make sure. a selection? What is well, the right it, well, you know, it's changed. It's, it's a great thing, right? Because when we first started off with HATM, it was about picking the best history film, right? So we start off, okay, National Treasure is the thing that plays fast and loose with history, right? But then we did, you know, Lincoln, and then we did more and that and so forth. Um, but as we went on, I, I would tell you the first thing that the most important thing to me is diversity. Um, when we comes to picking out a film each week. Um, and I mean that in terms, not only in just like a setting or tone of the film, you know, we don't want every film to be set in the United States. We don't want every film to be a drama that's three hours long. But where really what I want is for the people who are tuning into HATM to know that, you know, the films that we're choosing are representative of the people who are watching the movie, right? So not every movie can be about a straight white man. Now, there's nothing wrong with straight white men. I happen to be one of them, right? But I want, you know, I want African-Americans and Asian-Americans, Chicanos. I want to make sure the LGBTQ community is represented. And I certainly want to make sure that we are going beyond the boundaries of the United States to talk about world. In Asia, you know, in, in Asia or in Europe or different things like that. Um, so those are the first things I'm thinking about. So each week as we're going along here, and kind of my head, I'm thinking, wait a second, we had too many movies here with with the white guy as the lead because I want to make sure that we get 
a movie starting starring a woman, right? Uh, or starring, a, a, you know, an African-American man or whomever, right? I want to make sure that, 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 that those different voices are being represented because it's important to the audience to know that, they, that this is an inclusive place. Um, and it's difficult at times because you're beholden to two major factors. One is what Hollywood is producing at any point in time, right? Um, and then also what Netflix or whatever streaming service provider we're using at the time has available to them. And Hollywood tends to make movies about American history and it, they tend to skew towards white males as the leads. So trying to, trying to go beyond those boundaries uh, is something that I, that I very much uh, try to do so. And one of the ways we, we've been able to do that is actually through animated film um, because they've offered all of this great stuff. Princess and the Frog, Coco, um, you know, we did an American tale, right? To talk about Jewish immigration and so forth. It's like, wow, all, you can do all these other things to talk about these things. Um, so there's that. Uh, so getting beyond that, then there's also the idea um, that you're trying to balance out week, week to week. Okay, we did a couple dramas in a row. Let's make sure if we're having a really heavy film that's very, if we're doing Schindler's List, we can't come back and do another heavy movie. It's, it's too much for the audience. We need to be able to balance humor with action, with, uh, you know, you make a mixtape, a mixtape, it's not all going to be the same kind of stuff. You won't listen to it. Um, and then above and beyond everything else to talk about, like, what makes a good film, what I found is that people really like talking about movies they have an emotional relationship to, a nostalgic factor to the movie. Um, we've done some great premieres, right? Uh, we did... Uh, uh, we did a few of them. We did The King, uh, uh, Outlaw King uh, on Netflix when that came out about Robert the Bruce. And it was fine. It was a good movie. People liked it. But no one had ever seen it before. And as a result, you get sucked in watching that movie and not tweeting along. And the magic of HATM is when people are talking about their relationship to the film, right? Jaws is a perfect example, right? Here's a movie about, you know, classic film and so forth. It's about all these other things, fear and different ideas. But what, pe what made it, fun that night is people are talking about when I went to see the movie, the first time I saw this movie, I've seen this movie a hundred times and talking about what it means to them. And now we start to see that what HATM does is doesn't just talk about movies or a historical event, but it talks about the ways in which we remember films and remember the past via films and the commonalities we have in those shared experiences and how those things combine us together. So those trying to trying to take all of those ideas into play is what um, makes a good uh, HATM. And I mean, what? what you're sort of circling around um, is this idea that like history is being done everywhere. So it's not just these like traditional period pieces that people tend to think like this is where I'm getting the history lesson from. It's like Lincoln. No, like movies like Jaws, which are not necessarily considered by um, non-historians to be historical narratives can be entryways for talking about these bigger uh, historical phenomena. Right. Sure. Well, absolutely. Right. And that was a thing, you know, I'm not a film scholar. I was just always a guy who liked movies growing up m m much like most people. Right. Um, so the cool thing about for me, my personal journey with HATM is how I have internalized the whole film going process as a result of just being the kind of the head of this. And it came very quickly to understand there's no such thing as a non-historical film. 
Sure, we've got films like Lincoln or Gangs of New York, or pretty much any Daniel Day Lewis film uh, <laughs> that is set about a particular uh, film about a particular instance. But films themselves are primary sources, and in watching them, we can get we can start to ask all these great questions about the time, the era, and what's being reflected in the film. And the perfect example of this is is Trading Places. Right, this was the fourth or the fifth film we'd ever shown on HATM. I was like, well, maybe we can show some primary source, right? And when you watch this film, you see the ease in which like homophobic slurs get thrown around in this film in the early 1980s. And it becomes a snapshot of what audiences think are funny, or at least what producers think the audiences will think are funny, right? Because all these movies are being made to make a profit. They're being sold because they're being produced because people think that people are going to watch them. Um, and then the values themselves related. You know, every, everyone knows the, the story, but you've got these two guys who are trying to do wrong to the guys who did them wrong. They're trying to put them in the poorhouse. And so ultimately, is this an indictment of the capitalist system? Or, does it, or is it an endorsement? Because it is with the heroes on an island with yachts, you know? Um, and this tells us a lot about that time period. We get to ask all these other questions. And then in watching this, how is this other reflected? Say, if we say, start watch Trading Places, and then 20-something years later, we're, we're watching The Big Short. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Um, so we get to now use these films to be really talk about different kind of processes, uh, snapshots, times in history, things like. There's really no such thing as a non-historical film. It's really just like anything else, just like any books on your shelves. These are entry points into a time period uh, that you can use. They're they're resources. You should really put that on a business card. There's no <laughs> such thing as a non-historical film. That's one of the things that we like to talk about when it comes to historians on housewives and reality television right because mm-hmm. i think one of the things that makes it so fascinating is that it really is like this mirror right looking back at us of society right we get so much of what um is going on you know in the culture mm-hmm. and what people think is appropriate you know and of course it's this massive audience watching fairly wealthy women um do really Ridiculous things, you know, but like there, you got to also realize that so much of the population watches it as aspirational. Right. right. And like um, even in I think it was 2018, there was all sorts of like blackface scandals and things like that, you know, and so watching kind of um, the culture shift right in what they think is appropriate or not appropriate in the reality TV. Like if you go back to the really early first seasons of The Real Housewives of Orange County, um, there are so many um, instances of just horribly blatant homophobia and comments about, you know, like uh, Mexican immigrants. And that still kind of is um, prevalent in that franchise more than others being in California um, in a particular place in Southern California. And so it's just really interesting to watch how the cast um, changes based on audience reactions, right, to to what's happening socially and culturally at any given moment. Even if it's not being discussed explicitly. Yeah. 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 Yeah, you know, there's there's an interesting aspect with you know, when you talk about Housewives, um, which is... You know, it's, you know, in a lot of ways, it's a lot like a map. And by that, I mean, you know, when you look at, when, when I talk to my students about how to engage a map, say from the 18th century, 17th century, things like that, the very first thing I'm asking them to do is to understand what's not there, right? What's not being depicted, which tells us more about the people who are making the map 
than about what the BAP is about that's fixing itself. In a lot of ways, the, the success of, say, Real Housewives is very reflective of that. Of course, the show is about, you know, these women who do X, Y, and Z or whatever. But really, when you start to think about it, we could ask all these other questions about why has this spawned so many other franchises, right? What is the driving force behind this? Why, you know, why are those changes? Being, why is that the map of the series being changed, right? Uh, as we go along due to whatever factors. And clearly, clearly it's because what we don't see, and that's because of the audience, right? The audience is driving these changes uh, and uh, either changes in how many housewife series there are or the changes in cast or tone uh, of themselves. So you can really take a show like Housewives or most any other thing and really start to ask really interesting questions to get to what is American culture or what is global culture like in 2020, 2015, whatever. Yeah, I know. That's so true. So bring us back a little bit to Bravo. Um, we know that Top Chef is your reality TV. That's where you dabble in reality TV. Yes, that's um, where I dabble. Yeah, how did you get into that? Top Chef. Uh, I'm gonna claim, I'm gonna credit my ex-wife on that, who turned me into a big uh, Top Chef uh, fan. The show we always used to uh, to watch, and whenever she and I talk to this day, we'll still we'll still banter about it. Um, so if you follow my, uh, my Twitter handle or my Instagram, you'll see it's filled with steakhouse with steak pictures and barbecue and, and so forth. Uh, so, uh, I always love cooking. In fact, when I moved to Florida years ago, as a 22 year old man child, uh, I had, um, dreams of going to Florida Culinary Institute and becoming a chef and those things never happened. I became a car salesman instead. Um, so uh, but the dreams never died. So, you know, I like Top Chef. It's a lot of fun to watch. I, you know, I like cooking. M- most any cooking shows, you know, the dearly departed Tony Bourdain, obviously, um, who's not on Bravo, but, you know, uh, oh, he did a few different guest spots on, on Top Chef, if I recall. I think he was on there a couple times. I think so, uh, as, a, as, a, as, as, a, as the judge. Um, but, yeah, you know, I like I liked, I liked the series. I like the people on it. I like the, the pressure, if you will. Uh, behind and the other uh, the other host, I started tuning into Top Chef in the second season. So I think that was Padma's first season as co-host that year, and was really kind of kind of went from there. So I've always kind of liked the show a lot, and I like and I like Tim Gunn a lot, who you know is not a chef uh, at all. <laughs> yeah, I loved Project Runway with Tim Gunn. And yeah, even today, you know, when things are not going well, I will like throw out a make it work. <laughs> <laughs> well, you no, know, the things that I like, and this is this isn't a vibe that you get from, say, a guy like Colicchio, who's like whenever he's kind of sitting back, he's kind of judging, you know, kind of kind of ju- kind of watching. He's kind of got this like in a very uh, very uh, intimidating presence about him if you're a young up and coming chef. But the thing that I like about Gun, and the thing that attracts me to most uh, human beings in general, is this very supportive atmosphere and Gunn has that about him where he's this very much, you get the sense from Tim Gunn that he's rooting for you to succeed. Right. And even if you don't, you know, he's the guy that's like, okay, cool. This is going to be hard and you're going to have to fix it. And maybe you're going to fail and that's going to be okay, but you're going to be all right. Um, and I like that. I like that. That's a, that's a sense of humanity that I very much want to be able to emulate. Certainly uh, just, you know, as a as a man, as a father, 
um, and you know, as a professional, right? So I, I really kind of, I'm drawn to people who have that about themselves. And, you know, I don't know much about fashion, as you can tell by my Star Wars t-shirt today. Um, but don't say that. John is a guy who I've always liked. <laughs> Yeah, Star Wars, Star Wars teaser could can be fine couture. Fine couture. Okay, well, I'm also wearing car, camouflage cargo shorts, so I'm going to go ahead and put that uh, out as well. That's it. So, yeah. Now you've lost <laughs> it. <laughs> this is Florida couture. Yeah. One interesting thing. Oh, sorry, Jessica. One of our first guests is Tanisha Ford, and she will tell you that, you know, clothes hold your, I forgot the term, in case you're going to have to remind me. The but residue. Residue that the, they they hold your basically your your memory right. Mm-hmm. So clothes are very important in terms of how you navigate the world, how you remember things. It's like its own. It's clothes are their own archive. Oh, so so your couture in Florida terms, your uh, <laughs> you know you're giving us a, a tribute to, to history with your your Star Trooper shirt. Why not? Anything works. Well, what you should know is that it was the first clean shirt I came upon this morning. <laughs> you know, the fact that it was the the Star Wars shirt was at the top meant that I wore it more most often. Uh, and you know, there's all kinds of different things. <laughs> Hashtag COVID reality. Hashtag no, kidding. Hashtag <laughs> COVID has really Absolutely. demonstrated that you do not need to wear pants ever. <laughs> Shorts <Never>. only. <laughs> the interesting. So circling back one second to your comments about Padma and Tim Gunn is that I also think of them as people that would, that just have the characteristics that would make for great mentorship and advising in the Academy. Mm. Right. it's, It's that humanity that they bring to everything. And I feel like they're so great at constructive critique. Mm hmm. Yeah. Well, you know, with Padma, especially, you know, she's you really kind of uh, been very open with some aspects of her life recently that were very difficult for her in her past. Um, and for her, especially when you speak about critique, she was a model, right, uh, for a very long time. And, you know, that's a job where you are being critiqued. You know, with Padma, it's there. You can respect the fact that she's been through a lot of fire, right? So when she is uh critiquing you again you know unfortunately in academia and I, I won't i won't claim that the history is alone in this you can get some really negative poisonous personalities who will cut you down just because they can for any number of reasons you so don't again, you <laughs> it's true all of us immediately have somebody come to mind in a heartbeat because it's so common right and that's just not who I want to be. And again, getting back to this idea, like I said about Tim Gunn earlier, it's like I'm drawn to those people who, look, you know, you're going to fail. And I tell this to all of my students, uh, you know, it's, it's going to happen. Someone's going to beat you. You're not going to have a good day on the test day, right? And there is this guy, um, his name is Jocko Willink, who really uh, kind of comes to my head in this. He's a former Navy SEAL and so forth. Um, and he has this expression, he says, good, you know, almost anything that bad happens to you, something good can happen. And I tell this to my students, I'm like, you have a bad test day? Good. You figured out that life will go on. You figured out that that method of studying didn't work for you. And now you know that you can go on and try something different. You know, your boyfriend breaks up with you. Your girlfriend breaks up with you. Okay, good. 
right? Obviously you hurt, but now you've had this opportunity to learn from this relationship and go forward, right? Your grandfather dies. Good. No, that's terrible. Right. But (laughs) in a lot of ways, right now you under, you also understand, right? That this is life and every day means something. So it doesn't mean that life isn't going to hurt. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be painful. It's not going to be hard. But in light of all of those things, you can draw some good from it if you are willing to kind of put yourself in that mind frame. And again, uh, people like people like we were just talking about, I think, really kind of emulate a lot of that. Mm. Excellent, excellent. I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to only uh, respond by saying I agree with you when it comes to Tim Gunn um, and some of these shows in particular, like some of these uh, reality shows. Top Chef being one of them, um, and there's others on other networks that I won't bring mm-hmm. up. Um, Sunday Best networks. Sunday Best on BET. I really watch how people um, deliver comments because it has actually helped me to, um, to decide how to approach students. So all I'm doing is I am and I am seconding what you say. There's a way to give comments and there's a way way not to. And destroying people is is what some scholars love to do, sure. but it's not. That's 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 not what the life is, right? That isn't that if, if you if you're doing this to destroy people, you're just you're that horrible person we spoke about. Whereas if it comes from love, if it comes from you know really wanting to see this person succeed, I mean, I think historians in particular, because arguably we've been told I've been told that we can be nasty. We, historians would benefit from watching some of these kind of shows to see how to level criticism in a way that won't destroy someone. Well, maybe we need a camera on historians when they give comments at conferences. Maybe that's what we need to do. Maybe the camera makes you nicer. Yeah, you know, I think that in a lot of ways, um, it's not quite an abusive relationship, although you certainly hear horror stories about advisors uh, and advisees and really nasty, quite literally abusive relationships, right? But the idea that because you've had it perpetuated upon you and then even inadvertently you do that to yourself, right? It's a, it's a cycle that you really have to stop, right? Um, so the last few years I taught, uh, high school, uh, down here in Central Florida as I'm working on my PhD and the word the students hear from me most in my class every single day is I love you guys, right? I love you guys. You're doing great. You know? And it's just like, and even it was like, okay guys, I love you. But that was, that test was horrible. We're throwing throwing it out or whatever it was. Okay. Understand, right? People are going to understand that if you, if they feel that they, they, they are loved, that they are safe, that they are comfortable right? Mm-hmm. They will trust you to get them where they need to go. And that's where, say, the learning comes from. That's where the personal growth comes from. I can tell you that in high school, it became very clear to me very early on. It was less about history, more about personal mentorship to these children, right? Who are looking more and more like adults, but are still very much children. Mm-hmm. And I taught at a very, at a public school in a very uh, poor county here in Florida. And I also taught at a uh, private school with some students of means. And I tell you, just because across the economic gap, students still need to know that they are loved, they are cared for, right? Um, and that what they say matters. And they're not being judged for those things, right? They have the ability to grow. And I think even as college students, whether you're a 25-year-old college student or a 42-year-old college student like I am, you still want to hear that. You still want to be able to like, it's okay to go on and make mistakes. You can say the dumb thing in class and know that you're learning from it or do whatever. Um, at least that's that's what I'm trying to mentor or model whenever I'm in front of uh, a student, no matter if it's a college, high school, my own children, whomever. 
Cool. And to bring it back to our podcast where we talk about not just historians, but we have great advice for grad students mm -hmm. and make, you know, we have great advice about how, how housewives should conduct themselves. The answer is always just be a human being mm -hmm. and recognize the other person is a human being. Uh, Casey, Casey, Casey knows this because I've, I have told her over and over when Casey first came to grad school, oh, she was anxious and everything had to be perfect. And, and, and there was a time in my class I even had to say to her, and I remember this, you know, can I do this? Because this is what I do. Because she always anticipates your question. If you met Casey, the anxious, anxious PhD student, to Casey now, the doctoral um, candidate, who is just relaxed and mellow, still on top of her stuff, but she has actually allowed herself to be human. You didn't. You thought this was going to be about me. It was going to be about you. She's allowed herself to be human, and she has such a brighter smile on her face. And you know, and you should see this beautiful baby. It's like it's very that the, they had. It's very clear that that Casey has learned how to be human with herself. So there's also like this. You know, I'm I'm totally in my feng shui touchy feely. Uh, moment now. So I also think that, you know, there's so much we can learn from Tim Gunn to bring it back around. There's so much that we can learn from Tim Gunn. <laughs> hey, see, I think it's a game break time because, you know, we all are talky talky and we could go off the rails any kind of way unless you bring us back to the, the, the game at hand. So today's Bonko Party Game Break, I envisioned as a contest to do our dinner and a movie night. So um, oh. I, it's three different rounds, and there's three questions for each round. It's a competition today, so you'll be competing against each other for points. Uh, so the first round will be cooking, and then it'll be wine, and then movies. And um, there'll be bonus points accordingly because <clears> – <throat> those, for those of you that have listened to the podcast for a while, we know that I love giving bonus points. So is everybody ready? I'll give you a second to think about uh, the answers, um, and then we'll start with uh, Jason, then we'll go to Jessica, and then Max for answers. Okay, so our first question, under cooking, what is the difference between baking powder and baking soda? You should have seen the side I Max just gave me. <laughs> I have seen it. Uh. Okay. Okay. Oh, Jason passed. You passed. Oh, I passed so hard. I was like, things I don't use in my kitchen. Okay. My mother once told me the difference about this. And I took a home ec class. And so I should know the difference. And I don't. One of them, I feel like, helps, helps uh, uh, the, the ingredients stick together. And one of them helps it diffuse. I have no idea what the answer is. I'm going to say powder sticks together, soda diffuses because you clean with baking soda of that. I'm, okay. I'm piggybacking off of her stuff. Thank you. Casey's chuckling at us. You Matt, get, what's the answer? Well, you guys sound right. I mean, I know. I'm guessing because I just follow the recipe. If they say baking soda, I'll just use baking soda. Um, I think baking powder is a leavening agent of some kind, whereas baking soda is not. But I... Which I helps it rise. Yeah. Leavening agent. And the only reason why I'm saying this is one time I tried to make challah, and I used baking soda instead of baking powder, and it looked like a little brick when I was... It looked nothing like challah. 
My answer initially would have been one you put in your fridge and freezer for, for odors and one you don't. But then we had to link it to cooking. So I had to go back all the way back to like eighth grade and think about it. So you know? are you guys ready? Yes. All right. So the difference is that baking powder is baking soda plus an additional leavening agent. Oh! Like usually cream of tartar. And so Max is actually kind of right when he says it has to do with leavening. So the difference is is that baking soda will only have one leavening, but baking um, powder leavens twice. Wow. So both well, when it gets wet and then again once it's getting warmed. So baking soda only leavens the first time once it gets wet, like as soon as it comes into contact with oh liquid. My God. I can't believe it. But I did it. say baking powder fuses things together. I didn't realize we were fusing baking soda with something else. Yeah. I want to bring this back to like pedagogy and talk about us as the baking powder of students. We want to let them rise up. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you. I tried. <laughs> yeah. Wait, okay. really? We we need to we need to we need to take this show on the road. I feel like if we took uh, HKTM and H on H on the road, I mean this is this is pure comedy. Maybe only for us. Maybe only for the four of us. But really, oh, yeah. that was a beautiful. That was a beautiful connection. Wait till we get to the wine. Okay. <laughs> so I think for this first question, I'm going to give Max two points, and you and Jason each will get one point. And I'm we would like more points. <laughs> you like more? Yes. Yeah, why not? Huh? <laughs> yeah. There's no money involved. Well, it's just to make it easier for the accounting process. Okay, so this uh, next question. What is a gazpacho and what would you find in it? It's like what would the gazpacho is be? Oh, wait, 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 wait. Hold. We have to like let everybody lock it in so that they don't cheat off of you. Okay. Although I think Max and Jessica both knew it was something cold, so. Yeah. No. <laughs> I, uh, nope. <laughs> that is not what I put. <laughs> Are you, is everybody locked in? Yeah. Yes. Okay, go for it, Jason. It's a cold soup, uh, and things that you might find in it are a spoon, uh, and, <laughs> um, Ladle, uh, maybe <laughs> corn. I don't know what's in this spot. My food needs to be hot. You know, I'm bourgeoisie. I'm not the proletariat. I eat hot soup. It's a show. It always be cold. Um, you can use beans in it, so it might look like a cold minestrone. The best gazpacho I've ever had, believe it or not, was made with white grapes. And, you know, gazpacho is typically served in a tiny little container. I don't know if that's because you're supposed to cleanse your palate. I have no idea. But it's, gazpacho is a great summer recipe. You know, there's many kinds of gazpacho. Um, that's what I have for you. If you live in Southern California, it's quite easy to make a gazpacho because we have such high-end uh, uh, vegetables that can go in with your little gazpacho. I don't know if it has to be a cream or a broth base. Um, that I don't know. Both of you were way more technical than me. All I wrote down was soup, garbanzo beans. Yes. <laughs> Fair enough. There's actually a really funny episode of Blackish where 
uh, their older son is like trying to play on like a high-end like travel basketball team and Rainbow has to take the team snacks and so she brings gazpacho and all these parents are looking at her like why did you bring us salsa that we're supposed to drink? <laughs> uh, so that's, that's a particular scene that I enjoy a lot. So gazpacho is a Spanish cold soup. Uh, you can make it a lot of different ways uh, but it usually does contain tomatoes, cucumbers, onions, garlic, oil, and vinegar. Amongst oh, sorry. various I agreements. I got too caught up on how good that white grape uh, gazpacho tastes. I even know the person who made it to this day. I, I forgot the fact that you needed some tomato in it as well. Yeah. So uh, sorry. I think uh, on that one, we'll give Jessica three points. I ne- this never have. We'll give Jason two points. And we'll give Max one point <laughs> for knowing it was a soup. Fine. <laughs> okay. And closing out your cooking round, what does crumb refer to in bread baking? You mean beyond the little stuff that falls off of it? That falls off the bread? Like what does it technically mean when someone refers to crumb in bread baking? The consistency? Jessica, I don't have it locked it in yet, so don't. It doesn't matter. We're gonna cheat every anyway. You're not making a show. <laughs> you're not making a show. You're not making a show. You our answers on the screen. <laughs> well, it's the honor system. I just want to say the honor system would be applicable if this were about about uh, cooking and not baking. Uh, we had baking <laughs> soda, soup, and more baking. <laughs> You got to rebrand this whole game. <laughs> well, you go, you have bread with soup, right? I didn't even mm-hmm. mean to make a bunch of questions about soup and bread, but I guess I did. Yeah, it's just baking. <laughs> nothing, has been, nothing has been cooked yet, except for this field of lies, right? I mean, that's what we've had. We've had a pie of lies followed by some accounting, and no one said anything about math when they said when invited me onto a podcast. So, <laughs> I, I handle all of our numbers. <laughs> I think it's a small portion of something, a particle. Um, I would also argue consistency because it's not liquid. It's, it's got to be tangible. It's a, it's, it's a small bit of something. What about you, Jason? An interdimensional gateway in which ingredients are found. Final answer. <laughs> Max? Um, isn't crumb referring to um, the like the outer lining of the bread, like the structure of the bread and the strength of um, its ability to like hold together? Uh, technically, crumb is the interior of the loaf <laughs> and defined by the holes of the structure, right? So, like, what does the like? So, how holy or not holy? Right. So Jessica, when you're talking about the consistency, that's what it was. Wow. I really, I really like shot the moon with uh, baking powder (laughs) v. baking soda. And now it's just over. (laughs) So Jessica, um, you're like, you just won the cooking round. Oh, this is probably the first time I've ever won only on my own without cheating. (laughs) Okay. But we're going to move into wine now. And I... Found where we actually talk about beer. 
(laughs) (laughs) No, it's really about wine. I looked up, I went to the sommelier handbook. And for for listeners that don't know, I, um, I actually worked a lot of odd and, and like weird oddball jobs going through my master's program and my PhD program. And for quite a while, I was like the wine person for a BevMo in San Francisco. So there's actually, sorry, go ahead. No, you can finish. There's actually a great, and I think it is on Netflix, a great show about um, this young man who wants to be a small year and he goes to France. And the flip is it's an African-American family. And so his dad wants him to stay home and take care of the barbecue shack. But he wants to go to France. Um, just the H H A T M uh, kind of movie. I feel like it's on um, Amazon, uh, Netflix. Sorry, Netflix. Max you and I watched realize- it too. I think we might have watched it with you, or kind of like right after you suggested it. But it was good. I don't remember the name of it, but from the title, you wouldn't realize that's what you're going to watch. Yeah. So that really begins and ends my my association with wine. So I'm going to lose this round. Let me just predict I'm going to lose this round. Okay. So the first first term for wine. What does it mean if it is vegetal? If the wine is vegetal. Yes. Stale. Okay. I'll go with stale. Do you want to weigh in, Max? Uh, I just wrote down flat. <laughs> I don't know what that means. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a tasting term um, that describes the characteristic of fresh or cooked vegetables detected on the nose and in the flavors of the wine. So if, if a wine tastes vegetal, it'll probably have notes of bell pepper, grass, asparagus, um, that kind of thing. Um, right? So like... Uh, Pinot Grigio can be kind of grassy tasting, right? So that would count as a potentially vegetal um, taste profile. Would it smells like that or that that's some of the ingredients? That's my question. That would be kind of like how it might taste. And sometimes you might smell some of these things. Um, but sometimes it's something that you taste a little bit too. Yeah, I'm going to say pro- it would be it's made. Like, it's the profile kind of of it. Okay, interesting. Okay. Yeah. Well, I didn't win that. <laughs> Neither did I. I thought that was like too obvious. It was like, uh, clearly it's... Like, yeah, I thought it was too obvious too. So. Right? Yeah, but people are always like, oh, I smell notes of... They do the face. We're like... Yes, yes, yes. Southern grasses of Spain, right? It's, yeah. So the next one, what is uh, the purpose of tartaric acid in wine? So it doesn't ferment. So it doesn't what? I don't. So the wine itself doesn't ferment before it gets to market and they open the, they open the bottle. So in front of you, so then you can do the face that Jason just did, which you close your eyes and you wave your hand and you put your nose around it. That's what I think. Jason. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. It has something to do with fermentation as well. I know that malolactic acid is involved. So tartaric acid, probably something in there. But so I don't, I don't have a. So Jessica's saying it makes it so it doesn't oh. ferment. Are you saying it is it one of the fermentation things? It aids in fermentation. Okay. It so, aids. In fermentation. So, okay, so Jason's doing the opposite. So he's inversing Jessica. 
say, no, this is what's making it ferment, Max? I'm doing neither. Uh, all I wrote down is, it's a leavening agent. <laughs> <laughs> so, Jason gets... Fair, he's holding a baby. He is not writing anything down. <laughs> Don't ruin the illusion. <laughs> or just to get our points for the vegetable... For the vegetarian that is, on the honestly, that would have been what I wrote down had I written it down. So Jason is correct. It is actually what's promoting fermentation. So tartaric acid is the principal acid in the grape. So it's mm. what promotes the flavor and the aging in the wine. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. So our last wine question before we get into the movie section. Uh, what is eulage? Oh. Eulage? Yeah, it's U L L A G E. Should I just go? You can go, Max. <laughs> it makes the wine Christmassy. <laughs> <laughs> Final answer. <laughs> Points, please. <laughs> uh, Jason? That's hard, but I don't even have an answer. I think that's what happens when your in-laws move in with you. You'll age significantly. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody's going to be on the freeway listening to us right now going, no, it's... Oh. Actually, I'm going to give Jason a kind of a point for that because it does have to do with like this aging process because eulage is the empty space that's left behind in the bottle or the barrel when wine evaporates. That's what I said, right? I built a school grad <laughs> <laughs> Everyone's correct. So actually, Jason totally crushed the wine round. Like no one even else, no one else got on the board in the wine round. Shocked. Okay, movies. Okay, the pressure is on here for me now, so I'm just going to go ahead and fail. Yeah, this is the make or break moment for you. <laughs> okay, so. Two of our three questions have a bunch of potential bonus points associated. So, um, uh, according to Insider, as of July 2020, what is the most expensive movie ever made? Wait a minute. The most expensive? Yeah. What's the expensive movie made as of July 2020? And I do have a list of the most expensive movies made. So... Um, and I, and I cross-checked it with Wikipedia. So if you're, if you get anything in the top 10, I'll give you bonus points. Avatar. You say Avatar? Avatar Mm -hmm. was also my final answer as well. Mine was very close to Avatar. Um, I knew it was going to be something that visually enhanced. Um, I'm going to go with Avatar. (laughs) all right so any other movies you want to say so i can i feel like transformer movies any any old transformer movie okay i know back in like was the answer but that's not the answer anymore so you're using you're going with avatar and transformers jessica sure okay And then, Jason, did you want to have any other movies that you want to throw in there? Yeah, let's go with, let's go with Endgame. Yes, I was just going to say Iron Man. Yeah. I will go Infinity War. 
just to even that out. Um, yeah, I have to say Endgame or Infinity War. And I also want to say, um, isn't Gone with the Wind considered one of the most expensive movies made at the time that it was made? It was. Yes, it but was. Even, even adjusting for inflation, it does not touch oh. this list now. Oh, okay. Um, okay. That I've cross-checked again with a couple different sites. So, um, this is really weird. Avatar was the most expensive film for a long time um, until 2011. And the strangest, like, this is the most bizarre thing for me that what comes up as the most expensive movie made was Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. Hmm. And that then, makes sense. In the ocean and under the ocean. Yeah. Yeah, ocean films are, are phenomenally expensive. Yeah. And but then, we never got another Master Commander film, which which kills me because it was great. <laughs> and then Age of Ultron from the Avengers is second. Endgame third. Infinity War fourth. And then, at this point, um, Avatar is dropped to 19th. Wow. Wow. Yeah, right? So 19th? Yeah. And like some lists have them in a, like slightly different places. Um but like the Harry Potter films, for example, fell out of the top 10 most expensive made. Um so yes, I'm going to give I think everybody 3 points on that one. Okay. Next question. What is an Abbey Singer shot? A what? What is an Abbey Singer shot? It's using the Abbey Singer technique, uh, camera technique. That's all I got. So Jessica's saying it's a camera technique, Jason. Uh, I'm going to go with um, it's the it's the shot. I think Spielberg does this where he holds close on the face and then backs up real fast. Okay. Max? Um, I'm going to say it's the shot when, um, like, it's showing the enormity of some, like, usually a structure, like a building or something, and they shoot upwards to it. I'm just throwing it. I'm probably wrong. <laughs> Technically, the Abbey Singer shot is the name for the second-to-last shot of the day. It's named after Abby Singer, who was a famous assistant film director and production manager. So technically, you could all be right, right? Because it's whatever <laughs> the second-to-last you know, thing that they're filming yeah. of the well, shooting day. Right, as I said, it was named after, and it was a camera shot. But I definitely, mean, we were all wrong. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we're definitely But wrong. I'm giving everybody one point. You heard the confidence, though, from all three of us. I, I love the confidence that was brought. Okay. This is what happens when you talk about building people up all day. Now we're just like, hey, you did a great job. Yeah. Your answer was wrong. Right. right. I really love your passion. A for effort. Well, that does it for part one of this two-part episode with Jason Herbert. Stay tuned next week to find out if Dr. J. Mill, the millionaires, pulls out the win in this Bonko party. Oh, and... We're introducing a new segment for season two called Allegedly. Dun, dun, dun. As 
as always, you can find us at historiansonhousewives.com, where you can propose your own episode topic, ask us questions, and send us feedback. You can also follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at historiansh. And don't forget that you can like and review the podcast on your preferred podcast platform. Thank you, Jason Herbert. This show was brought to you with the support by Barbara and Mark Spear, Saddleback Community College, Christina Hinkle, Christina Gambapur, Jed Merlaski, Pete Murray, Yvonne Ballardes, Cody Baker, Molly Callahan, Dr. Joaquin Galarza, Courtney Crow, Laura Loper, and Louis Osio de Dios. And remember, scholars do bravo too. So I have a heavy-handed question, very heavy-handed question. All the power I have on this podcast, which is basically, (laughs) I I, I hold the microphone. Now, do you ever reprise any movies and 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 reshow them? (laughs) (laughs) Is a movie so good? (laughs) Yeah, is a movie so good that you just need to show it again? <laughs> well, just bring people to a place where they remember their first like exposure to music, or they remember their first exposure to be, like being a grown up. Do you ever reprise any movies that are just? Yeah, like- I remember, you know, a, a film that you're probably thinking of in in line is Lincoln. Actually, we showed Lincoln twice. Oh, uh, no. The Academy Award no. winning, no. you know, no. Daniel Day Lewis masterpiece no. No. that brings no. back the. This- Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.